Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. We want the Arizona Supreme Court to affirm that life is a human right and uphold the legislative intent to keep its pre-road law, protecting unborn life from the moment of conception. To my knowledge, no one behind the bench or in front of the bench has a medical degree. And that's the problem with all of this. This is a public health issue, and it's a conversation between a provider and a patient. It's essentially a case where they're they're saying they don't like what the voters have done, and they don't like that they can't change it. But again, the legislature isn't injured simply because they don't like how the voters have exercised legislative power. We intend to take the first steps to turn the ship around at the University of Arizona and to assure our campuses and the public that this will not happen again in Tucson or at any of our state's universities. You actually didn't need the peach impeachment inquiry if you had a White House that would work, just work cooperatively with you, and they chose not to. Providing multiple fuel options allows the market to compete during shortages and helps keep gas prices low for Arizonans. For far too long, Arizona has borne the brunt of federal inaction on our southern border, and I'm tired of it. Now is not the time for partisan politics. It's time for action. And with me to talk about this week's oral arguments at the state Supreme Court over abortion law, an endorsement in a crowded congressional primary field and more are Paul Benz of High Ground. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. And Don Penich-Thacker of Agave Strategy. Don, good morning to you. Good morning. So, Don, let me start with you. Obviously, the big story of the week, the arguments on Tuesday at the state Supreme Court over which of these competing laws on abortion should take precedence. Obviously, a lot of people have lost a lot of money trying to predict what courts will do. But based on on what you saw, what like how do you read, you know, how do you sort of read the tea leaves here? Well, in watching the the oral arguments and kind of listening to the questions that the justices asked, if if pushed to make a prediction, I think that they will come back and uphold the the 15-week ban, so the law passed by the legislature in 2022. Um, and, and, you know, for folks in favor of reproductive rights, bodily autonomy, that's a good thing. It's not far enough. It's it's still a 15-week ban that doesn't allow exceptions for rape or incest, and that's why um, people will still be circulating and signing that citizens' initiative um, to expand abortion rights on the 2024 ballot. Yeah, Paul, what did you see from, from the arguments on Tuesday? Well, I mean, they, they went back and forth here questioning if, what was the intention of a law if you never ex- expected actually to go into effect mm. or that you create the loophole there. Uh, I think the governor, former Governor Ducey made it abundantly clear that he thought 15-week ban was the law of the land and he appointed several of these justices. Um, you know, they have to read the tea leaves themselves. This is a, a retention and a political position. And um, it, going to the territorial law would be an absolute disaster, uh, not only for the state, but also for Republicans. Well, so as Don mentioned, Paul, there is an effort ongoing to collect signatures to put a, a an initiative, a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Do you get the sense that um, based on what the justices rule, will that impact either the effort to collect signatures or, of course, depending on when the ruling comes out, or might it affect how you know, how it affects turnout, how people decide to vote on it. Uh, Certainly. I I think if they were to put the territorial ban in place, that would be a steroid shot for the uh, signature gathering effort. I think they're going to qualify for the ballot no matter what. But uh, if they were to go to the near uh, near total ban, near criminalization of abortion, which is incredibly unpopular among the electorate, 
Uh, that would be a major driver among the electorate. I think going to the 15-week proposal would take a little bit of wind out of the sails, maybe for some of the undecided, unaffiliated voters who are maybe on the fence about it. Uh, but I still think no matter – either way it goes, they're likely to qualify. Don, do you think that if, as Paul suggests – and you predicted as well when pushed. I'll, I'll point out <laughs> that if the justices decide to stick with the Court of Appeals ruling at the 15-week ban, does that maybe take some of the urgency out of the issue of, of of getting this initiative on the ballot and passed? I think to an extremely minuscule level. Um, you know, I'm I'm in touch with the folks working on signature collection. Mm-hmm. Um, folks understand that there is a 15-week ban. You know, they they are not confused about what kind of the, the choices are, and they still want more time. They still want that decision be- to be between patients and doctors, not politicians. Um, and they're very aware of the fact that, you know, a 15-week ban with no exceptions for rape and incest is the law of the land now. And, and I, you know, I predict may, the judges will likely uphold that. But another legislature could change it again. And the legislature after that could change it again. And that notion is why the Citizens Initiative is for a constitutional amendment to settle the question once and for all that providers and patients should have this decision-making power because the legislature is unreliable in terms of any stance one direction or another. And that's ultimately what voters don't like when it comes to this question. So the argument right now becomes, here's the status quo. It's not OK. We need to change it. And, and here's how. Right. Right. So so it, it's popular for most voters to be able to have that decision making power in their own hands. That's what the initiative does. And so will it have some impact on the margins? Sure. But but it changes absolutely nothing about my prediction that, you know, the initiative will qualify and it will go on to win big at the ballot. Paul, we have seen in instance after instance these kinds of initiatives winning at the ballot box in state after state. And conversely, efforts to to ban abortion or restrict it more stringently have failed in state after state. Is there any reason to think that if this initiative qualifies for the ballot, anything would be different here? No. You look at Ohio and you look at other places and we've seen similar results. I expect – uh, not only would it have a light, strong likelihood of passage, but it also has a strong likelihood of turning out younger voters, uh, more unaffiliated voters, more of the folks that maybe want to maybe sit on the sidelines because it's a rematch likely between Trump and Biden. Maybe that lack of enthusiasm uh, might be pushed uh, by something like this. And this is the case in Arizona for many years, whether it's education funding or marijuana legalization. We've seen time and again the legislature not take action a citizens group come along and put an initiative together and it passes overwhelmingly. And that's why we see the legislature continue to try to put more and more limitations on the initiative because um, they're, they've been threatened by it because their lack of action has turned into citizens' action. Is it too simplistic to say that these kinds of initiatives, let, let's take the abortion initiative, if it makes the ballot, as you say, turns out younger people, unaffiliated voters, is it too simplistic to say that helps other Democrats on the ballot? No, I think that's exactly what it does, especially, uh, you know, with Biden's low approval ratings numbers right now and certainly the new efforts to attract uh, Hispanic voters and other things that we've seen the Biden administration do. I think uh, from the top of the ticket on down, they need something like this to enthuse those younger voters. The larger the turnout is in the state of Arizona, that means more younger voters, more unaffiliated voters, low efficacy voters that maybe don't show up. Those folks tend to at least lean a little bit more progressive. It should help 
uh, Democrats across the ballot if it were to be on the ballot. Don, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I'll say of my my own folks that the Democrats certainly can't like sit back on our laurels or anything and and not make the case for why Biden needs to be reelected, why we need to take control or at least tie the legislature in order to see these state level decisions, which, you know, if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court more and more, it's your it's your state laws your local laws that really touch your life. And so the Democrats are still going to need to make a good case for don't just vote for that question at the very bottom of the ballot. Flip that over and remember which party is actually fighting for the things that you believe in. Speaking of elections, Paul, we got a former presidential endorsement in the 8th Congressional District. Uh, This is the the seat being vacated by Debbie Lesko, a Republican who's retiring. Uh, Former President Trump endorsed Abe Hamaday in this uh, in this race. He, of course, lost narrowly to Attorney General Chris Mays uh, last year. This is a really crowded primary field, as you would expect, in a safe district one way or the other, safe Republican district. It also includes Blake Masters, who former President Trump endorsed in his run for Senate. It includes uh, Ben Toma, uh, who is the current speaker of the State House of Representatives. Are you surprised that that the former president uh, went went with Hamaday here? Well, first thing is that the CD8 primary is the election. It's a plus 11 registration advantage for Republicans. It's a plus 17 advantage uh, in the actual participation. Whoever wins this primary will win this general election. It's the second reddest state, or second reddest district in the state, mm. only second to CD9 represented by Paul Gosar. So whoever wins this Republican primary will win the general election. I'm a little bit surprised that Trump decided to wade in his Power, however, has been in crowded primaries. Him, him putting his thumb on the scale, picking a winner uh, has been generally well regarded. It's in those two people races or in some of those competitive races that he hasn't done as well. So it's sort of like picking the favorite in a, in a group of long shots. You know, it, it's a lot easier than uh, in, in a crowded field like that. And so um, it certainly will help Hamaday. At the same time, Hamaday has got his own baggage. I think there's We've seen last time around in the Lesko race several years ago, the front runner was immediately taken down by a series of attacks. I think it's going to be an incredibly negative and nasty race. I think that we will, because Hamaday is now Trump's chosen one, uh, we'll, we're going to see a lot of exposure, a lot of coverage, a lot of re- revelations about him. Uh, don't count out Ben Toma. He, he's represented the district for a long time. He recently announced the endorsement of John Kyle. He's mm-hmm. got Debbie Lesko's endorsement. She's incredibly popular in Sun City. Um, you know, he's in the legislature right now and has a, a track record of achievements that he can point to. Um, I, I certainly think that this endorsement of Hamaday right now puts him in the lead, but I'm not sure if he can maintain it. We should mention, Don, that this race also includes former Representative Trent Franks, a congressman who held that seat before basically being forced to resign over over scandal. How much do you think this endorsement helps Hamaday? As Paul said, it's a crowded primary, um, but still a long way to go. I mean, we're still you know months away from anybody casting votes here. Yeah, well, I don't know. Should we mention Trent Franks? <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with the premise there, but um, no, it'll be fascinating. I mean, this is essentially a contest of which shade of red is this district going to elect, you know, the overtly extreme MAGA or, uh, you know, kind of I'm going to call him like a hometown boy, a local boy, you know, in terms of the district in Toma, who is certainly is an ex- a, an conservative voter and leader. You know, they will not be able to poke any holes and accuse him of any liberalism or anything. Um, So it'll be interesting to watch. You know, I would be remiss as the 
as the lefty on the panel here to not <laughs> say that there is a Democrat in the race. His name is Greg Witten. Voters can go look him up. I have nothing to do with his campaign. But, you know, folks out there do have a choice. But, you know, the last time this district elected a Democrat, it was in 1980. And that Democrat went on to re-register as a Republican <laughs> in the middle of his tenure. Yeah. So Perhaps to Paul's point about the, the voter registration advantage for Republicans in that district. Correct. Don, uh, Governor Hobbs this week said that she was open, potentially, to sending National Guard troops to the border. This, of course, in the wake of the closer, closure of the Lukeville port of entry, which is b- basically the one thing in the state that can unify Democrats and Republicans. They all hate it. <laughs> um, do you think this is a realistic possibility? And do you th- if she does it, do you think it would make any make any difference? Well, it's it's a realistic possibility because it's slam dunk politics. To, to be someone who's offering a solution to, like you said, an a ongoing frustrating situation that all parties can agree they're sick of. Um, it's unclear what a governor asking the National Guard to go down to an international border would actually achieve yeah. um, in terms of practical impact. But, but I think what is really interesting about this headline this week is just, yeah, that we're in a place where it's it's an election year, essentially, and it's a safe and beneficial thing for even Democrats to be pointing out failures of the of Biden's White House. And so, you know, looking at this and what a tough fight it is likely going to be between, you know, the rematch of Biden and Trump, it's, you know. My my network is like, Joe, buddy, let's let's figure something out here. (laughs) You you know, Arizona is a battleground. And if there's one thing that all Arizonans love, it's the ability to get to Rocky Point quickly and easily. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, Paul, I mean, I hate to sound cynical here, but I mean, it's almost become kind of a gubernatorial tradition, right, to send National Guard troops to the border going back to Janet Napolitano. Right. Uh, in fact, I mean, the, the thing I was actually going to point out is that when we've had government shutdowns in the past and the Grand Canyon was threatened to be shut down, that we've had multiple governors send the National Guard to open the Grand right. Canyon. And now that's a little different than an international border, but it's good politics, as Don mentioned. It, it truly is. And, um, you know, I, I know folks that were sp- intending to go down to Puerto Penasco for after Christmas. And, really? um, yeah. you know, it, it's been devastating. And if we care about international commerce, if we if we actually care about our relationship with Mexico, Mexico is Arizona's largest trading partner. Um, you know, keeping that open. This seems r- incredibly punitive. I understand the 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 tactics of this, that it's the lower crossings, but it's just so it's so symbolic of. The border challenge, and it only makes things worse. Immigration is the first highest issue in the state of Arizona right now. It's number one among Republicans. Uh, it beats out education right now. It beats out water issues. And these – when we see it spike with things like the caravan and unaccompanied minors, every time uh, there's an actual crisis that we can point to, and this quite frankly will be a crisis. And it's very wise of Governor Hobbs to do something about this. Um, it's politically savvy. It's also expedient. Um, it'll be incredibly well received. And so, you know, uh, to the point, the Biden administration has made a pretty big miscalculation on this, especially in a battleground state. And they, they need to do something about it and need to do it quick. Can it make a difference? Though? I mean, in the past, when the state has sent National Guard troops to the border, it's basically to do like to take the job of the Border Patrol agents, like paperwork and sort of supplies and, and support kind of things. So the Border Patrol folks, the agents can go and do the jobs that they're supposed to be doing. National Guard troops aren't really trained and equipped to, like, handle and open a port of entry. Right. 
<laughs> it's certainly a more challenging uh, job description than what we've talked about in the past. But the the action itself, I think, is what's important, and the 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 pressure that it puts. And we see Senator Cinema, Senator Kelly, uh, Governor Hobbs. We've seen a lot of folks uh, be critical of this, and I think that's wise uh, for them to do because you know the alternative here is that. Uh, Folks are fed up. And this leads to a broader immigration discussion. One of the things that is important of any immigration reform, and I think there is an appetite, particularly among the Arizona electorate for immigration reform, it has to also include border security. And I know there's folks that don't want to hear that, but border security needs to be a part of it. It's the it's what puts your foot in the door to have the rest of the discussion. Well, and Don, we've seen in in Congress there's a lot of effort to try to get something done on border security as it's being tied to aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel. And, you know, we, we've seen this week Kirsten Cinema saying she sees the possibility of a deal. A lot of Republicans saying we don't see the possibility of a deal. It seems like pretty much everybody agrees that, like, something has to get done, but actually doing it is the hard part. Yeah, I think this is probably going to we're at a point where this needs to require some um, maybe closed door intense conversations at the executive level. So the president needs to be talking with Customs and Border Patrol, needs to be talking with, you know, congressional leaders and figuring out what that might be. Um, a lot of folks are up for reelection. They're going back to their constituents and needing to be able to say what they did about this top issue mm -hmm. in Arizona, most of all. And so, you know, we're still, what, 11 months out um, most voters are not paying a super amount of attention right now, but these conversations also are going to take a while. And right. so to Paul's point, you know, this this really needs to get moving now or it's going to be hanging over everyone's head when folks are voting. And that's the last thing they want. Don, speaking of the executive, uh, the House, the U.S. House this week voted to formalize an impeachment inquiry against uh, former uh, against current President Joe Biden. All of Arizona's Republican members of Congress voted for it. The Democrats voted against. Not much of a surprise there, is it? No, not surprising. And I feel like the theme emerging from this week's conversation is political points, you know, talking points. Um, you know, when asked what are the what are the accusations, what are the terms of the impeachment inquiry, Republicans have been very vague about, you know, uh, influence and uh, some money was made and kind of really unclear kind of points that make it clear that this is something to give them, uh, you know, something to talk about when they go back home, when they say what they're doing in Washington and why they need to be the ones sent back to pursue this. Um, there's really no there there, but that seems to be kind of the political era we live in. Paul, is it possible that this might affect, I'm thinking of a couple of Republicans in Arizona, specifically Juan Siskamani and, and David Schweikert, who are in the more, of the of the districts, those are the more competitive ones. Can this be a potential factor in their reelection campaigns? Well, let's be clear. They're in two of the most competitive districts in the country. Um, and yes, absolutely. But I mean, the thing, the, the talking point they have, there's a swath of Republicans that have said they, they're not sure if they actually want to proceed with this. But in doing the inquiry and doing uh, some of the subpoenas that they were trying to do, they were getting a lot of pushback that these were illegitimate inquiries until there was an actual formal vote. And so the pitch that was been made to Republicans is you need to vote for the inquiry um, in order for us to be able to accomplish this research and understand, really do the investigation. Uh, and impeachment's like an indictment. Is uh, I think we talk about impeaches a lot. And I think it's yeah. important to <laughs> remind people that 
impeachment's like an indictment. The Senate does a conviction. And so the, this is way early in the process. There will be an investigation. They've struggled uh, to find any wrongdoing at this point. Um, that that vote alone will probably not be enough to sink Siskamani or Schweiker. But it's, it's the, depending on how they move from here because the process is they do these proceedings, they have an investigation, and then they have the articles of impeachment. Um, their vote on the articles of impeachment might be a little different than voting for the inquiry. We'll see if they're if they're specious, if they're not well founded, if they're you know a, sort of a, a list of sort of vagaries. I think that would be more challenging for these folks than just the vote for the inquiry. Well, presumably, you would think House leadership, if they were going to lose votes like Siskamani and Schweikert, perhaps they wouldn't put it up for a vote. Right. Because that would be pretty embarrassing for them to put up articles of impeachment for vote and have it go down. I don't know. I mean, after the speaker's debacle earlier this year, <laughs> I'm, not, fair. You know, I'm fair. not sure that we we know uh, there's not a lot of calculus going on. It, it's sort of a, for all these political points that are being scored. We I see time and time again that folks are just willing to bash their head into the wall and see what happens and then try again. I, I, I'm not sure at this point. Don, what do you think the, the president's strategy should be here? You mentioned you both talked about sort of this unforced error from the administration of closing the, the Lukeville port of entry in a swing state. Can the president use this inquiry to his political advantage? Is he better to just ignore it altogether? No. President Biden and the White House and, you know, uh, Democrats at the federal level all just need to be talking about their own plans, the ways that they're going to help people with how much it costs to live, you know, their health care, how they're going to keep people safe. Um, they need to not be being pulled into, you know, these invented scandals or, you know, talking points and just focus on getting their message out, which is something that, you know, I, I would love for the the White House, for Biden to be doing a little bit more of, of talking about the, the good things that have happened, because he definitely has a challenge in front of him of people not connecting him and, and his leadership with some of the positive moves that we've seen with the economy and in other areas. And so they need to just stay on message about their own accomplishments. Paul, would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I think, that, you know, uh, he's got an indictment. Trump's got two indictments. See, it's the same. You know, I mean, like that's they're trying to drag it into sort of this nebulous environment. And it's also trying to mitigate the fact that uh, there's over 100 counts against the former president. Um, you know, I, I think that's what they're trying to do is try to take all of that off the table uh, and, you know, try to make it more of this silly personal interfight. And, and they can't take the bait. The Democrats have a track record of success that they can point to. Um, Republicans to this point have been very unskilled at saying what they're for. They simply keep demonstrating what they're against. In order for them to win, they need to demonstrate what they're for and come out with their own plans and how they would like to govern. Simply just being anti-Biden will not be enough to get them over the finish line. It'll get them close. Uh, but the politics of opposition is different than the politics of governing, and we need that they need to demonstrate how to govern. Interesting. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Paul Benz and Don Penich Thacker. Thanks you both for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.